with another episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast. And for a while now, we've been looking for someone to talk to us about the grid. Longevity, maintenance, solar, are just some of the things that we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, Peter Bergamini, who's a senior electrical engineer at Olson. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for asking. A little bit about myself. I've been in this industry for over 10 years now, stretching all the way from an internship at a major utilities power plant and working on several different statewide grids. And today I'm here to kind of discuss my thoughts on it. Let's dive into longevity. What are your thoughts regarding the grid? Something that's kind of stuck with me over the years is thinking about the grid as the largest machine in the world, right? Because the grid itself, it has generation on it, it has motors, and it comes from many different facets. You have places that have excess generation and places with excess load, you have to deliver it. So with the distance it has to travel, this has to be the largest machine in the world, the U.S. power grid, that is. And a fairly shocking statistic that's a couple of years old, but I'm still going to go with it, is about 70% of the grid's transmission lines and power transformers are over 25 years old. So when we talk right? about the nation's infrastructures and its situation, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. So when you think about flipping the light switch on in your house or running your blender or anything, you don't think about where that energy comes from. We've become so accustomed to it just being there. And we've sort of also become accustomed to, there's periodically outages, but they don't stretch a long time. It's only when we have really long unexplained outages, similar to what happened in Texas in 2021. People from natural disasters, they tend to say, oh, hurricane came through, it just destroyed our infrastructure. So we have to rebuild, that kind of makes sense. But for, it just got kind of cold. People don't really seem to understand that. And a lot of that does have to do with the age of our grid. To go back to the 2021 storm, there was a plethora of things that went wrong, but part of it was the demand was really, really high and production is down when it's cold. Maybe not as significant as people thought, but when gas prices went up, some of the emergency reserves just went offline. It was too expensive to run them. So now you have less available power, but your load is increasing. That's increasing the strain that's on that equipment that's already 25, maybe 25 plus years old. Something's got to give. And you saw in February of 2021 in Texas, it wasn't just that production was down. Some of these plants that are old, they started to suffer under the, the strain. A lot of the distribution transformers blew. The line by my house had three of their pole transformers blow on it. That has to do with the direct age. And the fact is we really only replace equipment when it fails. We're not as proactive, we're more reactive to the situations that happen. And that's not just Texas, that's pretty much everywhere. And if you look at the last couple of weeks around the US, there's been significant strain on the grid due to the heat waves that are happening. So you're seeing the effects of all this aged equipment. It's not just Texas, right? It is Tennessee, I believe, just had an extended outage. And I think North or South Carolina also did too very recently. The effects of the flooding in St. Louis, they haven't been able to maintain some of the grading on these stations. And the grading is crucial to draining water. Now, flash flood, there's almost nothing you can do to prepare for that. But when you have standing water in a substation, that... A, creates an unsafe environment, but B, you're adding another element that your already old equipment has to deal with. And if you have old transformers that rusted out the bottom of their oil tank, now you got an oil leak, now you've got major cleanup. So now you can't just go ahead and replace that piece of equipment. You have to clean that area up, prepare it for a new one and install a new one. So you've maybe not doubled, but 
you know, one and a half times the amount of work that you would have had had you just replaced the transformer as it got old. And so I think when we talk about the grid, what people don't realize is just how critical it is to our way of life, but how underfunded and underprepared we are for major events. And I think we only ever realize that when major events occur, right? When a hurricane hits, when an earthquake or a flood hits and something happens and we realize we don't have another way, right? There's no N plus one means of transportation so of that electricity. Uh, it's called the ideal maintenance cadence. Obviously, 25 years. Uh, I have harsh words in my mind <laughs> at the moment, but what would be ideal? I think you have to look at it on a couple of fronts and it depends on the piece of equipment and what it's doing, right? So something like a transformer should probably have either a stouter build for a longer service life or more frequently replaced because they take the brunt that literally transforms the power from one voltage to the next because we transmit at high voltage to reduce our losses. So 345, 500 kV, but not many places can use that. So this is a big piece of equipment that gets really, really hot and when it gets loaded, it gets even hotter and more strained. We have cooling methods, but I think that piece of equipment is the one you protect the best, but also is probably the one you should replace more frequently. Something like a circuit breaker, that you could probably go 15 years with regular maintenance checks, but 15 years in between replacing that or replace it based on number of operations, which is a very easy thing to track nowadays with digital relaying and all of that. You can just pull, oh, how many times did this breaker operate? Because they do get slower, the more operations and the older they get. So a big way that we protect equipment is we have what's called breaker failure schemes. And this can be a topic on its own, but I'll briefly touch on it. Basically, it's a timer, right? You tell this breaker to open and a timer starts. If the breaker doesn't open in the right amount of time, it tells everybody else nearby to open up, which again, drops a whole station out sometimes mm -hmm. and can interrupt power for more than just that one small line that was affected. And so when you're talking about uptime and reliability, I think managing a breaker by its operational count is probably a better method. So that could be a 20 year service life. If you keep the lines clear, you don't have vegetation or a lot of stuff growing in them that causes the breakers to have to open and close briefly. So why are we prioritizing this? Normally when we're not doing something the right way as an industry, you think, oh, there's probably like this complex process that we need to go through and what you're describing obviously it's very simplistic so all the listeners can understand and make sense of it but still why aren't we prioritizing this that's also kind of a multifaceted problem so a lot of the utilities started out as co-ops which we still have you still have a lot of rural co-ops that aren't part of the larger transmission system and when those got bought up i think profits were prioritized over all else and as you grow right it becomes harder and harder to maintain every aspect if you have 25 miles of line you might be able to have five guys cycle those 25 miles every month to make sure that you don't have trees growing into it, or you don't have too much sag or tension on a line. Your poles aren't leaning too far. You know, you can easily have somebody go into each substation and see like, Hey, we have a rodent problem. We really need to handle this. So as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you have these really large companies in the Midwest and in Texas and on the coasts, the maintenance was not prioritized. It wasn't budgeted high enough, in my opinion. That's what causes a lot of this. A company in California that recently got hit with some fines over the wildfires. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that was 100% preventable, but the potential is that it could have been preventable. And all they really had to do was maintain their lines. 
And I think today's day and age, it should be even easier, right? We have drones. I can go on Amazon and buy a drone that can have very clear picture for 50 bucks. I do know flying around power lines, there's magnetic fields, but there has to be a way in my mind to integrate that into the general maintenance. Maybe if you're a large company, you break it down into smaller sections and let people manage that, that whole top-down dynamic that's used in almost every industry. The person at Ford that's making the wheels isn't the same person that's making the pistons. Those are two separate entities. I think that you treat your transmission system very similarly, the generation, the transmission, the distribution, but now you break it down again, kind of like Ford, they have this plant over here that makes F-150s, this plant over here that makes transits. So you have this group over here that monitors this section of the line, this group over here that monitors this section. And I think if you break it down like that, you would be able to identify issues a lot quicker. You'd be able to replace equipment a lot more efficiently and not have to go failure to failure. And generally you'd have a more reliable product. And let's not forget at the end of the day, the electricity is the product. That is what's being sold to us. Yeah. And going back to what we saw in California, that same company, the CEO came out and said that they've made a decision to start investing in undergrounding the transmission lines because they realized the damage that is caused and the maintenance cost by having an overhead has become more expensive than what they need to deal with rather than if it was buried in the ground. Yeah, I completely agree. And going back to the cost, right? It's on average about three times more expensive to run underground than overhead. And there are some more considerations, but also less, right? Heat's more of an issue, right? Because you're not trying to dig this ginormous trench and fill it with concrete. You're trying to make it as compact as possible, but you don't have to worry about birds landing on your line and limbs landing on your line, the tension on your lines, because, you know, everything expands and contracts as it gets hot and cold. And that's easier to deal with underground. It's more controlled in that manner. And when you're sagging from line to line, you know, that U shape is there on purpose, right? It allows that flexibility, but it's also something that has to be maintained. So I do agree that going underground is ideal. It's not possible in every case, right? Where is it not possible? Where you have really high rocky areas, it's going to be cost prohibitive to go through that. Really, if you want to get up, somewhere, right? Going up a hill or up a mountain, going underground while possible is not really your best bet. But there's other things they could do for overhead. The main reason that you can have your tree in your backyard growing up into your power line and nothing happens, that's because that conductor's insulated, right? Got polymer coating or something on the outside that prevents the tree from conducting electricity. So in areas where you have high tree growth, maybe that's quicker first step to make is let's reconductor this line, but this portion let's make insulated. If we're going through the redwood forests that are just absolutely beautiful that we're burning down, well, maybe let's insulate it. Yeah, it's more expensive, but that might be an interim cost between going fully underground and what we have currently. More so finding that middle ground is what's gonna be important. I kind of touched on it earlier with the Texas storm. We talked about the problems with generation. As we move forward, what's the real answer in terms of increasing our generation? If you look at all the data, right, we're going to be increasing the load, the demand on the system by, I think something like 200, 250% over the next 15 years. And that's not just electric cars, which I know a lot of people like to say, oh, well, it's all electric cars causing this. I mean, it's just getting hotter. AC has to run longer and sooner. You know, I had to turn my air conditioner on at the end of May this year because it was already hundred degrees outside. There's more buildings going up. And more office space. You know, part of progress is really this, right? We're electricity centric. 
think of electricity as just slightly less important than water, right? You know, when the power is lost, you see the effects that that has on hospitals, traffic, a lot. We don't know how to function without it as well as we think we do. So that's why as we look forward to paths in terms of maintenance and transmission distribution, the other side we do have to look at is generation and how do we combat that? Because we're not building 2000 megawatt nuclear plants. The EPA regulations, and this is not me saying I don't like the regulations, but it's really hard to build coal plants as well. Natural gas has its limits. Diesels, obviously the fuel costs really prohibit you from making a large scale diesel facility. So you have to look at what can you do to supplement the grid that's another facet where we have to find that middle ground. You know, solar and wind, or what's called DERs, distributed energy resources, those are great, I think, for supplementing that baseline load, kind of like you would treat a nuke plant, because the fuel is limitless, but it's not on demand either, right? You know, wind turbines are only going to spin when wind is present, right? You're only going to really produce good amount of solar energy when the sun is shining and your panels are at that perfect angle, whether you track them or they're fixed. The other facet of it is, you know, DERs don't have a lot of inertia. I mean, solar has no inertia behind it. So when you do have a line fault, the thing that allows you to reclose and lose power for shortest time possible is because in those generators that are producing those power, they're big, huge turbines, right? They have a lot of inertia behind them. We can't just say, oh, well, let's go 100% solar. I personally don't believe that that's the answer that we can have with the way our grid is set up. We need some means of being able to clear a fault quickly. Right now, when we have a tree fall on a line to the system as a whole, that's like a monster truck running over a pebble. Very minor impact to the system as a whole. If we were to go back to having those smaller co-ops, I think that this would be a different conversation. It would be a little bit easier to say, well, yeah, let's go all solar and wind because we have to take all of our generation offline to clear this fault safely. But we're still talking about, let's say 200 people that are affected as opposed to hundreds of thousands of people that are affected when anything happens. What are the state level or federal plans that we're seeing both regarding the transmission and distribution lines and making them more resilient and the grid more resilient? I can't speak to a lot of the grid, but I can speak to certain areas that I have some expertise in. And so one of the things that Texas is doing, that ERCOT's doing, is grid storage. You have a few options. I think Tesla has the Megapack or PowerPack, I forget what they call it. And there's other companies that have these batteries, SunPower makes them. And there's also Redox Flow batteries. And I think that that's a good example of, we have access on the grid, let's close in these batteries, let's charge these batteries up, and then use that as stored energy for later when we have to transition from our daytime load to our nighttime peak. Now you have this energy that was ultimately going to be wasted before is no longer wasted. It's stored. So I think that the first thing that they're trying to do, and I know this isn't just unique to Texas, I think Colorado and Missouri are also doing similar projects respective to their own reliability councils and energy providers. But I think that the grid storage is that in-between I was kind of talking about that we need to hit because it means that you don't have to rely on diesel generators or natural gas plants to provide that in-between when you're waiting for your big coal plants, you know, because you have to ramp up and ramp down your coal plants. Otherwise you would just waste tons and tons and tons of fuel, but they don't ramp up instantly, right? You can't just turn a knob and it goes up instantly. You think of it like your oven, right? You turn that up to 500 degrees, it takes time to get to 500 degrees. 
well, this energy on the grid, that's instantaneous storage, right? It's instantaneous electricity. You close that in and all of a sudden you now have whatever power is available in those batteries ready to be used. And those tend to be at the distribution level at the 13 or 15 KV and below. It means it gets to go directly to consumers as opposed to when you ramp up these diesel and natural gas generators, that still has to go through a substation, transform down to what you can use it at. So I think that that is one area. But if we're not talking about intermediate solutions, like what would be the ideal solution to fix the core of our bridge resiliency? I think that solar provides a lot. The biggest hindrance with solar currently is the cost. The average home to get solar on your roof is like twenty-five dollars to $30,000, I think. And it's like an 18 to 20 year payoff. If we were to subsidize anything, we could subsidize the cost of installing solar. I think if we got most houses, let's say 50% of the houses in a given area with solar on them, even if it's not a high producing area for solar energy, it's still more than zero, right? And that's all distribution level that's done at somebody's house, right? It's going back to the grid directly to the next person's house. So I do think that an immediate impactful solution that we could have is getting solar access to more and more people. As panels get cheaper and cheaper to produce, as we get better and better at battery technology, the power packs I was talking about, why not put those in people's houses? They charge up when demand is low. And then if there is an outage, now you've got that house that still has power. You've effectively helped one family. And so if you got everyone in the neighborhood with a battery pack on their wall of their garage that doesn't take up a ton of space, but let's say provided eight hours of energy for them. You know, that might be the difference between life and death. They might be able to say, okay, you know what? I can conserve energy. I'll shut everything else off, but this room, I'll put curtains up. I'll put a space heater in here and we'll hunker down and hang out in this room. And maybe they can ride a storm out now. That to me is the best immediate impactful solution is to get the DERs and the battery storage at the distribution level at the individual homes and businesses for that matter, you know? You're in an office building, put some panels on the roof, right? Produce some energy in a space that's otherwise wasted. Do you think solar on the transmission level can have the same effect? Going back to what you said a little bit behind. Again, the biggest problem with it on a transmission level is the fact that you have no inertia behind it. So when you do have a problem, you can't clear it as quickly or as easily. There's a whole subtopic in power engineering of critical clearing angle and all of that. It is impactful, but the cost for payoff isn't really there. Whereas again, the roof of your house, what do you do with it? Right? Nothing. It keeps water from coming in. But if I could take that space and produce any amount of energy with it, and now multiply that on my street alone, there's 18 houses, right? If nine of those houses could have solar panels on them, we would probably produce enough excess to power the entire street on a given day, on a good day, right? Today, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's 104 degrees outside. Sun is shining. It's perfect solar opportunity. Now, again, that's here in Texas. There are places with more cloud cover, more tree cover, stuff like that. And that does present a problem. But just remember, on a cloudy day, you still produce electricity on solar panels. It's just not as efficient. If you would normally, say, produce 100 watts, you might be producing 30 watts. Could be less, but again, you'd otherwise be producing nothing. Currently, the roof of my house produces nothing. It doesn't do anything. And the only reason I don't have solar on my roof is it's not cost effective for me. I don't know if I'm going to be in this house for 25 years or 20 years. So it's not something that the next owner is likely to want to buy from me. They're like, oh, no, you did that. That's your problem. I'll keep it, but that's your problem. 
How come Ericard I'm getting into this? This seems like a huge opportunity on a state level to solve an issue that the entire state is suffering from. I think part of that is just the general politics in Texas. You know, there's not a ton of renewables here anyway, and they're often blamed for the reason that the infrastructure here is so poor. Solar and wind fall to the same pitfalls, not directly, but similarly pitfalls that nuclear, right? Most people think nuclear plants, they think of the Simpsons, right? The three-eyed fish. And I worked at a nuclear plant. There were people that would hold signs that would say, stop polluting my air. Like it's literally steam coming out of that. There's no pollution, but I think that wind and solar are seen as hippie stuff, right? It's not a real way to produce energy. I think that that's part of it. I think there's a negative connotation to solar and wind power. And that's why you don't see more and more of it. But I have no doubt in my mind as a nation, if we were to invest in battery technology, invest in wind and solar, we could come up with some stuff that is incredible, right? We have aircraft carriers that don't need to refuel for 30 years floating all over the ocean that can land impressive aircraft on their own. You can't tell me that if we put our collective minds to it, I firmly believe that we could come up with something that would be way more efficient than what we have and way more accessible than what we have. What are the most interesting technologies that you've seen in this space? Like this is going to change our world. The design for these battery packs, not just the Tesla or SunPower, but there's dozens of them. And these redox flow batteries are pretty interesting, pretty neat. Recently, I went to a conference, uh, the IEEE conference. It was in New Orleans this past year. I do encourage anybody that's able to convince your company, go by yourself. The IEEE conference is one of the best ones that you can go to. The person who did the talk was absolutely incredible. Those two sort of battery systems were really, really neat. So without getting too off topic, the redox flow, it's basically like a fuel cell where the solid electrodes are replaced with energy dense electrolytic compounds, hydrogen, lithium, bromate, bromine, hydrogen, the Tesla power packs and stuff. I think those are just standard lithium ion, but they're getting more and more charge out of a smaller and smaller package. If you think back to rechargeable batteries, what's in your laptop that lasts three or four hours. Well, now if I'm not doing anything extensive on my laptop, I can probably go about 12 hours in between charges, right? I don't have a fancy phone. I have the standard Android. I can go an entire day as long as I'm not video chatting all day. Even taking the old technology, but the way that it's evolved is also really, really impressive to me. So that means when you do go large to say like a shipping container size, you're able to get 5,000 kilowatt hours out of something that's that size. We're talking about a 53 foot shipping container sized thing that is basically larger than most on-site reserve generators at power plants. That's pretty impressive to me. I do think that that is a really quick band-aid, but even longer term than a band-aid because wasted energy is just that, right? You're always producing more than what your demand is because you don't want demand to ever exceed. So if you have a way to take that wasted energy and store it for future use, I think that we absolutely should. So in the short term and long term, I do think that these redox flow and lithium ion battery banks are impressive and they are a good solution for us. I've been reading a bit about what's happening in France now with the nuclear reactors. They shut down a lot of them, some for maintenance, some because they weren't working properly. That had this huge impact on the European electricity grid that has also been impacted because of the steps taken by countries like Germany who have kind of drawn back on a lot of that stuff and kind of focused on renewables. And then because of the whole geopolitics thing, they got impacted by that. It makes you think like despite popularness, like you touched upon this before of nuclear, it's still the most 
resilient, trustworthy source of energy. I know this might be not PC, but why aren't we investing more into nuclear reactors? I think there was a lot of really successful campaigns, lobbyists against them back in the 70s and 80s. And I think that that's still impacting today. I mean, similar people are still in power that were in power in the 70s and 80s. I think what people fail to realize is they hear about Chernobyl, right? What happened in Chernobyl wouldn't happen Fukushima, you know, we've had a nuclear incident here in the States, right? Three Mile Island. People often think about that. What people don't realize is I believe two of those units are still active and producing electricity today. I think two units had a complete meltdown and one unit just had some exterior damage to it. So they shut it down. But two units, two of the five units are still producing power today. And there's been no deaths linked to any radiation leak from that. Now you can say what you will, the government's blocking the data or what have you, but I choose to believe because I was in that industry, I worked in a nuke plant. I know the safety regulations and procedures that they have to follow. So I am in agreement. I think that, you know, again, kind of like I touched on earlier with PV and wind, if we were to put our collective minds into nuclear energy, you can't tell me we wouldn't find a way to have a waste reactor, right? And I do believe there are some waste reactors where, so we take the spent fuel where it won't produce enough of a reaction in the core anymore. It would go into this other reactor that would then use what's remaining to produce excess power. Another thing I think people don't realize is most nuclear power plants have every bit of fuel that they've ever used stored on site still. And the story I I tell a lot of people, when I worked in a nuclear plant, I had to go into the protected zone every now and again, and you would go through the radiation scanners. You would have the little tag that would beep after a certain amount of time. Like it's very, very safe, but I'll never forget this. I had gone home one weekend. I was hanging out at my folks pool, didn't wear a ton of sunscreen because I wasn't the brightest at that point in time. And when I walked through the radiation scanner, it picked up the fact, and my baseline was now too high. I was not allowed to go into the protected zone. Wow. Radiation exists, right, all around us. And the sun is a very potent form of radiation. Our ozone layer blocks the bulk of the bad stuff. But the fact is, is they still prevented me from going somewhere that could have lifelong impacts to me because I was out in the sun too long one weekend. So I have firsthand knowledge that the nuclear industry here in the U.S. won't succumb to the same issues that we've seen globally because we're just a little bit better prepared, I like to think. And Three Mile Island is the perfect example of that. When you dig a bit into the reactors that have some bad stories around them, these are old reactors, right? The new ones with the new systems, there's just so many preventative measures in place. We're not using that technology anymore that they found. You're absolutely right. So the place that I worked, they would try to do what's called a breaker to breaker run, which is in between maintenance cycles. You would try to go 18 months without tripping because a new plant takes about three months to go from not producing anything to full production. Cause due to our safety regulations, you can't just turn it all the way up. You have to go to stages, check everything, go up, check everything. That's not a complaint. I think that that's the right method to go. But we touched on earlier that our grid tends to be more reactive than proactive. That's the opposite of nuke plants, right? When they insert the control rods to stop the reaction and they pull to do a refuel, they will do just tons of maintenance. Oh, this might be an issue. Let's replace this stretch of pipe. Or we were having lower flow out of this. Let's replace this valve. And so they are more proactive than reactive. So they take all the time that they have. This is offline. We are going to do as much as we can in this outage while the refueling is taking place. Now, obviously the grid doesn't have that, right? You don't refuel the grid, but maybe when you do have a tree fall on a line, that line's already out. Why don't we replace these distribution cans while we're at it? Why don't we try to upright this pole? 
And I do agree to what some people say is, you know, when the power goes out, you're just trying to restore it as quickly as possible. But I bet if you were to communicate to the public, hey, it's going to take an extra half a day, but we're going to make sure this pole isn't leaning anymore, or we're going to replace this pole, and we're going to replace these transformers and these switches with newer ones. What you do with every other utility when there's a you know, you need a fix? I think that communication on how the grid works and what the grid is doing is paramount going forward. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but to go back to February 2021 in Texas, I don't think that there was any communication that went to the general public. I told as many people as asked me, I'm fairly knowledgeable in the subject. I kind of knew what was happening, but I also knew we could be in for the long haul. And as many people that would listen to me, I said, hey, stock up on X, Y, and Z. I had a bunch of friends who went and bought those little propane heaters, the indoor safe propane heaters so yeah. that they could warm a room. They bought yeah. ramen noodles. They bought extra blankets, things like that. But none yeah. of that was communicated on a large scale. And not only that, after it happened, none of the progress was really communicated well. It was just Encore has 25,000 people. Brazos has 18,000 people still without power, but no status of what was actually happening. That is one of the things ERCOT can do. That's what ERCOT should be there for. Same with like SPP and any of the other reliability councils. It shouldn't be on the energy companies. I don't want them focusing at all on PR during an outage like that. I want yeah, every yeah. available resource. I don't care if it's the person that normally prints stuff, like have them help start prepping yeah. material and whatnot. I want the utility company focused 100% on restoring power. But this is where ERCOT could have stepped in or SPP or any of the others could step in and give you an update. This stretch was affected by something that happened here where we're replacing this whole thing. It should be done in two days. Instead of just kind of giving these number counts of how many people came back online. If I told you, hey, 250 people are without power and 210 people are still without power an hour later, does that really tell you all that much? No. Because it's not a gauge. Somebody might take that as meaning, oh, okay, they're getting 40 people back on every hour. So it's only going to be at most this amount of time. But you and I well know that that's not how power restoration works. If it's just a blown can, yeah, that might take an hour to just pull the old can, put a new one on, call it a day. One stretch might be an hour fix, but what if you had an earthquake and you had a big transmission tower fall over? That's not a day fix, right? And I think that the lack of communication on that level, you know, maybe it's because they think that people wouldn't understand it. But as my wife and many people tell me, if somebody doesn't understand what you're saying, then you didn't understand it well enough to teach them. Definitely. While you and I can talk technically, I use a lot of analogies when I talk, like I did earlier with, you know, monster truck and a pebble. My son can even understand that, right? He understands that my car can roll over a small beam, one of those parking lot beams, but I can't go through a brick wall. So I think that PR needs to be increased to help people understand what this is the largest machine in the world and nobody outside of the industry truly understands the impacts that they have, the impacts that it has on their lives and the functionality of it. I'm really hoping that the relevant decision makers are moving to start taking proactive measures instead of reactive measures. You know, we're seeing a lot of talk about the recent infrastructure build, and I'm hoping that a lot of that is going to alleviate the system a bit and give it some room to work. That makes sense. Absolutely. We normally end these episodes with two final questions. The first one is in one word. What do you think we can do immediately, like not in the midterm and the long term, immediately to impact the longevity of the grid? 
I think you can start being more energy conscious, right? So throughout the day, my house sits at about 74 degrees in the mm -hmm. summer and 75 in the winter, heating versus cooling. And we ramp it up and down. So when we start cooking, I drop it down to 72 because I want it to be comfortable for me. And we use fans. Whereas at night, I drop it all the way to 68 because my wife doesn't like the sound of a fan and I like to be cold. So we compromise on that and I don't have my house set to a flat 68 all the time. And I think with Nest and things like that, that's really helping with that. But just yeah. changing your thermostat one degree is, is super impactful. And another thing you can do on the same notion is, and it's built into Google Maps, I have the eco-friendly drive where it's, it's not just the least amount of traffic, but it's the one that makes the most sense in terms of less amount of stops. So not a ton of stop signs, not a ton of traffic. So think about what we're doing when we're driving. It's very easy to turn on your metal music and just hammer down the road and you're burning fuel, right? You're adding to our global warming. So I just think being mindful of your own energy uses, whether that's electricity, fuel on a daily basis can have a huge Absolute impact. Absolute responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Last question. Who do you think we should have on next on our podcast? Ooh, if you can get him, there's this guy on TikTok I follow, Jim the PE. I really like what he has to say a lot. He's actually the one that got Jim me thinking of grid as the largest machine in the world. Yeah. There's also a YouTube channel called Practical Engineering. I really like how that guy breaks things down. We were talking earlier about needing to better communicate with the public about our grid. The way this guy talks about engineering and just the basic concepts provides beautiful visuals. I absolutely love his content. Both of them are, are fantastic. Jim has fantastic earrings as well. So a little partial to that. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Very, very insightful. This was a ton Hopefully of fun. We'll I appreciate it. Again. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great day. Bye.